Today, you're going to hear from Jackie Espinoza. I was really thankful that she came on the show and was honest and open about her story and her path from addiction to recovery. This is an issue that we've talked about a lot at the national level a lot, and we we know that we have seen addiction reach crisis proportions across the country, and we're not immune to that here in Reno County. In the past year, according to the Reno County Health Department's dashboard on overdoses, we've had 353 overdoses in Reno County, 19 of which have been fatal. In those, the there's a pie chart that looks at what type of drugs uh, have been used and, and, and reached a level of overdose. Alcohol accounts for 20.4% of those overdoses. Meth accounts for 18.4%. Prescription drugs is 17%. Heroin is 11.3%, oxycodone is 7.4%, and over-the-counter drugs is 9.3%. Nationally, we've seen a 30% increase in overdose deaths, according to the CDC. And in Kansas, we've seen a 34.4% increase in overdose deaths. I think as you listen to Jackie's story and you, th- and you think about addiction, one of my frustrations in the way we talk about this is I, I see and I hear people talk about it and frame the conversation in using the language of judgment and choice. And I think as you listen to Jackie, you'll find that's not necessarily the case. And more importantly, I think we have to recognize that someone's addiction doesn't make them less than human and it doesn't make them not a part of our community. So I hope when you listen to this story and you listen to Jackie be so open and honest about her life's experiences, you'll remember that every addict that's out there has a group of people that loves them, that is dealing with the pain of addiction, dealing with the effects it has on families, friendships, and everything that goes with that. And that those people are praying every day that this person they love finds their path to recovery. And I think as a community, it's important for us to hear these stories and then think about what we can do to to help make our community healthier. And part of that is addressing the issue of addiction with a warm heart. Hey everyone, this is Jason Probst, That Guy in Hutch, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. I have with me today Jackie Espinoza, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, an issue that's really important to me and something I care a lot about, and that's uh, the issue of addiction, and more so how we help people get out of addiction and how we look at people with some humanity and do the work that we need to do to help them uh, come out of that situation recovered and able to participate in our economy and our society. So Jackie's going to visit with me a little bit about that today, and I'm glad to have her here. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. So we were talking a little bit before the show, and uh, tell me just a little bit about you as a person growing up. You, you were, you, you, you're 33 now, but you haven't always been 33. So tell, yeah. tell me about your life a little bit. Um, I grew up in Tehran, Kansas. If you don't know where it is, you probably won't know where it is. It's teeny tiny. Um, 
mostly with my dad and my little brother and my grandparents. Um, went to Fairfield High School, had babies in high school, and then moved to Hutch. Um, I was addicted to drugs from 23 to 30, and I know we're going to go into that a little bit. And went to jail, Oxford, corrections, and came all the way out of it. So, well, let's start with the important thing. How long have you been clean? I will have three years next Monday. Congratulations. Thank you. So you're growing up in Tehran. That's a pretty quiet town. I mean, like I said, if people don't know where it is, it's kind of in this no man's land between Kingman, Pratt and Reno County. It's in Reno County, but it's just barely, barely in Reno (laughs) County. And uh, so what's life like out there? It's super quiet. It's different now than when I was growing up. When I was growing up, like there were no cops out there. We were outside all the time walking from house to house, you know, to my grandma's house. It was just real quiet, like almost stereotypical country living, you know, but there's also a lot of drugs in Tehran. And when you say it's a small town, it's small. Like, do you, do you have any idea how many people live out there? If you had to guess? I used to tell people it had a population of 200, including pets. Yeah. And so there's not much in the way of anything to do or services or it's mostly residential. Mm -hmm. There's not even a grocery store. Yeah. Or a gas station. It's just, there's a bar. Yeah. So there's a bar. You would be bused to school. Yep. Um, and then once you're back home, nothing, you're just at home. Yep. You said that you had babies in high school. How old were you when you had your first child? Um, my first child came when I was 18. Okay. Uh, right before I graduated, I got pregnant at 17. Um, and then I had another one at 19 and another one at 21. So you, you, your early years from high school right out, you were, oh, yeah. you were having babies. Yeah. At, at what age or what point did you uh, start using drugs? Um, I started drinking and smoking pot and like sneaking pills from my mom when I was 14. But I didn't start doing hard drugs until I was 23. Talk to me a little bit about how that happens. I mean, there's probably, there might be some parents listening and they might be a little bit on the edge of their seat or unnerved knowing that, you know, 14 year olds might be sneaking into the liquor cabinet or yeah. into the medicine cabinet. Did, talk about like kind of what drove that, that decision. Were you just a teenager being a teenager? Or I tell- think, I think so. Like when I drank for the first time, I drank with my mom as like some sort of rite of passage, you know, she made us strawberry daiquiris. Um, When I smoked pot for the first time, I was with my best friend and her boyfriend who was older than us. Um, The pills, my mom, my mom always had pills. They didn't seem like a bad thing to me because she took them so often. Like my whole life, I just remember them being there. Um, And they're from a doctor, right? Yes, absolutely. They had her name on them. So I didn't necessarily, and there were times like if my fever got too high or if I was hurt that she would just give me one, you know, but I don't even necessarily know if she knew the danger of a Lortab at the time. So. And I think that's one of the issues we have is a lot of people for a long time didn't recognize the danger of some of these prescription drugs, right? Absolutely. So you, you do that. And then you, you said you started doing hard drugs at 23. Mm -hmm. Talk about that transition. What kind of moved you from one realm to another? Um, well, I was dating a boy. And him and his friend 
showed up at my apartment and they had meth and they knew that I did not appreciate that substance in particular. And they were like, don't worry about it. We're not going to do it in front of you. We're going to go to the bedroom. You won't even see it. So I'm sitting in my living room, like hearing them laughing, hearing them having fun. Like, and I got mad, like, why can't I be involved? You know? So I just knocked on the door and I was like, if you're going to do it in my house, I want to be involved. Like, I want to try it. And that's how it happened. It was all downhill from there. So at that moment, you're, you're, you're feel like you're missing out on something. There's this fun thing happening. A little bit of that, but there was also more of like, if you can't beat them, join them. You know, there was more substance abuse than just my mom's pills in my childhood. And I think there might've been something along the lines of like, why will this substance not leave me alone? You know what I mean? Like, what am I missing? What don't I understand about this in particular? So I want to explore that a little bit. So you, you've been surrounded by this most of your life. It's, and you've up to this point been resistant to that. You've not, you, you've done the, the prescription drugs and things like that, but this has been a bright line for you. Right. It was also the first time I'd been around it, knowing I'd been around it. Anything up until this point had always been done very secretly Mm -hmm. um, by authority type figures, you know, like nobody had ever been like, hey, I have this. And I had never known it was going on before. So I don't necessarily know how hard that line was for me, you know, because that's the first time I'd ever been around it. And I just went right to it. Yeah. But the way I thought in my head, that was a hard line, hard no. But once you crossed that line and you did it, like, can you talk about that experience a little bit? It became the only thing I wanted to do. Um, I thought for a long time that I had control over it, you know, like, oh, I'll just get high on the weekends, like when my kids aren't here, because I had my kids, mm-hmm. like, you know, um, or like, while my daughter's at school, you know, like I won't get high around them and it'll be okay. But it just, by the time I moved to Norton when I was 24, I wasn't doing it like that very long. But by the time that happened, I had lost probably 40 pounds. Like my teeth started falling out. Like it, it went bad really fast. So the start of this, you, you, you're like, I have control of this. This Mm -hmm. is recreational. You're, you're, you're in your head. This is a recreational drug usage yes. and you can control it. You can stop it at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did that? So then you start doing it more and I, I'm guessing that you probably hit a point where y- you weren't controlling that situation anymore. Yes. So talk about that a little bit. Like how did you have like a realization at some point that you weren't in control and couldn't stop it? I don't necessarily know if I realized that I couldn't stop it. I think I might have still believed that I could. Um, But I remember I became vividly afraid of losing my kids. Like I had gotten to a point where it was obvious what was happening. Like their dads knew what was happening. The school knew what was happening. Like my dad knew what was happening. He was showing up with fried chicken, like just eat a piece. You know what I mean? It became very, very obvious And I got it in my head that I was going to lose my kids. And was that enough to get you to stop at that point? At that point it was. Okay. But then how long did you stop? 
So I stopped using meth for almost six years. But when I got to Norton with my boyfriend, his dad lived up there. When I got to Norton, I immediately started abusing prescriptions of my own. And within months, I had a prescription for Adderall and Lortabs and Xanax and lots of them. Did you have any suspicion that you were prone to addiction? Or do you have any idea what kind of drove your your addiction? Uh, different people, I think, have different factors that, mm -hmm. that push them into addiction. I think for a long time, I believed that my addiction came as a response to the people around me. Like I reacted to the people around me. Um, the first time I did it, somebody else had brought it up and it seemed like for a while that was a pattern, at least at that point. And I really believe that everyone's addiction evolves. Like the reasons you're addicted at the beginning don't stay the reasons the whole way through. So while that might have been a factor at the beginning of it, it morphed into this coping mechanism. The relationship that I was in was abusive and it was the only way that I could cope. Talk to me a little bit about that because I think not everybody understands this. When you say cope, what is it about drugs that help people cope with some of the issues, the, the, the real deep personal issues? I know that some people it, I've heard that before that cope, like I, maybe I have trauma or I have something in my life and this is how I cope with it. Um, can, can you talk about that a little bit and help me understand that? Well, for me, it was, it was twofold. Um, the, the guy that I was dating at the time, it was easier for me to know how to deal with him based on the substances that he was using. If he was drinking that day, I knew what to expect. If he was smoking pot, I knew to expect something else that I could gauge how he would be based on what he did. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when you have small children and you're in a loud, scary environment, right? Like, I've talked to my kids about it a lot. They're much older now, but they've told me like, we could tell that you were doing everything that you could to protect us from that. And, and part of that, and this is not an excuse, but part of that is being able to act like everything's okay to them and not just to them, but to my job, to everyone that I come into contact with, you know, you have this, this need to feel like, or at least look like you're in control. Mm -hmm. And when things like that are happening and they're so overwhelming and I was 250 miles from anything I'd ever seen before, you know, being overwhelmed and falling into those feelings that naturally come into that situation, it just didn't feel like an option for me at the time. So, so yeah, so you're part of that is you're overwhelmed mm -hmm. and you're trying to, you're kind of trying to prop up all this normal. Mm-hmm projecting normalcy yes. to everyone else in the world around yes. you while internally, you know, at some level how bad you're really doing in that moment. Right. Yeah. And that that's kind of another thing, right? Like you have that internal conflict between the external version that you're projecting to people and internally, um, and, and that kind of gets to the root of it too. Right. right. With addiction. Well, and also, I mean, children that grow up in addiction, right? Like I remember as a kid being told you don't talk about what happens at home, you know? And it was almost like this protect 
the family and their image at all costs. And then once I was grown, it seemed like I was doing it again. Like I didn't condone what was happening and I didn't like what was happening, but I didn't know how to stop it either in that moment. So all I did was just try to make it look as normal as possible. So you're doing that. You're in Norton at this time. Mm -hmm. You're doing uh, prescription drugs and, mm -hmm. and, and starting to, are you, you're starting to get back into some of the harder drugs at this point? Not yet. Um, it took until I was 28 or 29. My mom came to visit and I smoked meth again for the first time in five or six years. And that was December of 2016. And so that, did that kind of start that cycle back up again? Oh, it was worse that time. Um, I continued working for a few months. I worked at a treatment center, which is weird. Um, I worked for a few months and then I finally quit. And I ended up back in Hutch. Um, the abusive relationship had ended, but once I got here, the only place that I knew to stay was with him. I ended up sick and almost died in the hospital. I had a staph infection they had to cut out of my hip. Um, and I didn't like the way that that was going. And I just took off and fell into the world of, of meth and drug dealing. And it was something that I thought I knew what I was getting into, but I didn't have any idea. So you're at that point, are, do you, are your kids with you at this point? No, by the time um, that had happened, um, they were with their dads. My daughter was about to go to her dad's and my kids all have different dads, but they were living with their dads. So you're, you, you get out you're, and when you say out, are you kind of like bouncing from place to place? Oh yeah. I was completely homeless for the most part. Um, just staying with random people for a day or two. Like I had a boyfriend, a new boyfriend that introduced me to a bunch of people. Um, but from, I would say probably April of 2017 until uh, May of 2018 that I didn't live anywhere <clears throat> for any longer than maybe a couple days. So tell me what life's like in that, in that period of time. You're bouncing from house to house, mm -hmm. um, probably doing more drugs, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Um, are, are, are you able to make any money in any way or? Well, I was selling drugs. Selling drugs at the time. Okay. So you were deep in by this point. You, yes. you, at this point, you came back to Hutch. You're, you're all in on, on this is your life. Yep. So how, do, so you're in that. I mean, how, how, how is your mind at that point? Like, I, I do you, do you, are you aware that like, I, I got to change this at some point? Is that even a thought at that time? Are you just living day to day? Um, at the beginning for probably the first six months, it wasn't, it wasn't a thought when, once you get to that point, I believe that the only way for you to really come out of it is for you to accept the fact that your life is your fault. Everything that I don't have my kids and that's my fault. I'm homeless and that's my fault, you know, and I wasn't ready to accept that blame 
and to take accountability and responsibility for those such big, huge things, you know, it takes a lot. And a, a lot of people never get there, you know, um, it's, it's this crazy, like, I remember at one point me and a friend of mine were sitting there and we were both talking about our kids. And she said, you know, what's crazy. I said, what? She said, I'm doing drugs to numb the pain of not having my kids. I said, yeah, but we don't have our kids because we do drugs, you know, and it's just this, this cycle that it's really hard to get out of. Eventually, um, I started to understand that what I was doing was dangerous. Um, they, your listeners can't see me. I'm not built for self-defense. You know, I'm not tough. I don't fight or anything like that. And that's really a tough, you have to be tough, you know, to live like that. And it was dangerous. I got robbed. I got beat up a couple of times. People pulled bats on me. People pulled guns on me, you know, and it was just very dangerous. But every time I tried to get into treatment, they wouldn't take me. Why would they not take you? They wouldn't take me because... I wasn't injecting. I was never an IV user. I wasn't doing heroin. I wasn't pregnant and I didn't have insurance. So you did have times where you tried to change the course of your life. Yep. And what I heard you just say is I wasn't a bad enough drug user Yep. or I didn't have the means to pay. Yep. Or I didn't have other people that I was directly endangering. Yeah. My life as it was on its own didn't matter enough without money. If you had money, if you could cash pay. Oh yeah. I could have went to Valley Hope or any of those expensive treatment centers, but I didn't. And of course you're not at this point. I mean, you're at a place in your life where you're not insurance is not a thought. Um, and anything like that is not something cause you're, you're kind of in survival mode and you're in a world that doesn't really fit the, the, the mold, I guess, for, for what we, the way we handle healthcare and access to healthcare and uh, substance abuse issues and mental health. Um, so, so you realize then, and I want to give like just a description, right? Listeners can't see you, Mm -hmm. but how tall are you? I'm about five, three. Okay. He's pretty short and you're fairly thin. Um, you're, I can see you're not very muscular. I mean, not like, (laughs) Not, you're not like in the gym pumping no. iron every day, anything like that. No. And I've got probably 50 pounds on me that I didn't have then. I was this scrawny, timid, like, yeah. Yeah. So you weren't equipped for street fighting. No, yeah. I refused to do it. Yeah. One girl hit me and I just sat down like, no, I'm not going outside with you. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you. You, that seems unlikely that you'd get into that. So you must've been doing that as necessity. It doesn't seem like it's a thing you wanted to do necessarily. I didn't think I could really do anything else at that point. You know, like I knew where to get drugs and I knew people that wanted to get high, you know, and all I really, for a while, all I cared about was buying cigarettes and Pepsi and pancakes and keeping my cell phone on. Like as long as I had those four things, I, I thought I was okay. But again, you, I don't know what kind of work you did before then, but I like what I'm get out of this is you, you looked at your skill set or you looked at what you had done mm-hmm. work experience wise. And you're like, this is probably the best way for me to sustain myself. Right. Right. Well, I had applied for jobs Okay. and they told me that I was overqualified. 
I don't necessarily know what that means because I had just graduated college from Newman University, I think. Um, I had worked at a treatment center and I remember I applied at Starbucks Mm -hmm. thinking, who can't get a job at Starbucks, right? It can't be hard to pour coffee. And the lady looked at my work history and she said, what are you doing? Why you could go somewhere else. I'm like, I don't want to go somewhere else. You know, the fact that I couldn't pass a drug, you know, to work in the field that I had been working, I had to have been in recovery for like two years to continue that work. Well, you can't get two years clean if you're homeless with no, you know what I mean? Like it's really hard to stay clean if the only place you have to go at night is a trap house. That's an interesting point. And I want, I want to focus on this a little bit. (laughs) You're even when you're in that world, once you've stepped in for whatever reason you get into this world, the, the way you protect yourself, the way you have shelter, food, mm-hmm. uh, any access to any resources is to stay in that world, mm-hmm. right? So it's not like you can just pack up your bags and start anew and mm-hmm. go on, particularly if you don't have a support system really that's not involved in that world, right? Right. I mean, I had friends that I would, you know, that I knew that didn't get high and they'd be like, Jackie, if you just, if you get your life together, I'll help you however I can. Okay. But what I needed in that moment was somewhere to sleep and shower and, and recover from, you know what I mean? To get, and I don't necessarily know if I would have stuck around. Like I could always go to my dad's house, you know, but it seemed like the only time that I ever went to my dad's house is when I was running from the police or something like that. You know, it was a crisis mode. And then I'd end up in Turon with terrible cell phone service and bored out of my mind, like, get me out of here. This is terrible, you know, but there's not a lot of options. Yeah. You did some jail time. I got arrested a lot. Okay. I wouldn't necessarily say I did jail time. I got bonded out really fast all the time. Would this be for, uh, possession or, uh, the first time I was ever arrested was for distribution, Okay, which is not a fun way to go to jail. They're not nice. I'm, I imagine not. I mean, they're not like assaulting me or anything. They're just rude. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and and they're probably unhappy with you because you were. Oh, for sure. You're you distributing drugs. Yeah. And I told them my name was someone else's. Like I was not, I was probably rude to them too. Yeah. <laughs> So you, so you, did you spend a period of time kind of in and out of mm-hmm. jail? Did you, but, um, did you get charged? Yeah. I, um, caught three, I guess I don't drug cases. Okay. I caught three separate ones, one in September, one in January, and then one in April, I think. But in between that, I was also dealing with traffic stuff cause I kept driving and okay. I didn't have a driver's license. They don't like that either. Yeah. Um, so I, I went in and out of jail probably 10 times in the course of a year. There was once I went in twice in one week. Did you get like a punch card or I anything? I sh- wish I would have. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another thing. And and when you, when you start getting into that loop, mm-hmm. you're, you're, that's another disruption to your life. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you're in jail, but then you get back out, but now you have this thing hanging over your head, mm-hmm. criminal charges potentially. Right. And if you th- can't get out of that cycle that you're in or that life that you're in, you're just mm-hmm. accumulating additional charges, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it wasn't even necessarily the charges. 
I don't think I adequately understood what I was playing with, you know, like people go to prison for longer for selling methamphetamines than they do for murder. And I didn't think I understood that at the time because I was just selling drugs. Yeah. You know, um, but every time I got out of jail, I had people, one person in particular that had spent quite a bit of money to get me out of jail, you know? And then it was, we got to go to Wichita. I'm like, what are we going to Wichita for? Well, I got to make back the money I just spent, you know? So that's a whole different, another loop that people don't always think about unless you've been there. Yeah. So what started to get you out of this cycle? The final straw for me selling drugs. Um, all of my friends were in jail. Everybody that had ever like come to my rescue, I guess, you know, the people that kind of halfway looked out for me, they were all in jail and they were all in jail in the same pod. I don't know how that happened, but they would call me, you know, and they'd be like, Jackie, what are you doing? What do you mean? What am I doing? You know, why are you asking me that question on a recorded line? And they're like, yeah, that's what we're worried about. We're all right here. What are you doing? And then one night um, I was selling drugs and this kid pulled a bat on me and stole drugs that did not belong to me. Mm. I was just doing a favor for someone else and it just spiraled way out of control. And I was like this, I'm going to end up hurt yeah. at that point. So at that point you realize that really hit you that this is a physical, yeah. this is an imminent threat. Yeah. We that happened. Yeah. That happened at four o'clock in the morning on a random street corner, right? Middle of the night. But then I had court at seven o'clock. So I had to go from this like crisis mm -hmm. that went into another crisis because the people who owned the drugs that were sold, they got real mad and it was a whole thing. Yeah. And then immediately into court. How did you manage that? I have no idea. <laughs> I just know it happened. <laughs> so when you're in this moment, you're like this, I got to do something different. Yeah. So what steps did you take to make that happen? Um, it took a little while. I stopped selling drugs okay. that day. Um, I kept doing drugs for a couple of days. And then I went to do my um, pre-sentence investigation before my sentencing, mm -hmm. even though I'd never been in trouble before, I'd gotten into so much trouble that I was in a border box, which meant I might go to prison. I might not. Yeah. So there were extra things I had to go through. And when you say border box, we're talking about the sentencing grid yes. that judges use to decide yes. the amount of time that you either get probation or prison in the border box areas mm -hmm. are discretionary right? based on you and mm -hmm. your history and the level of threat the judge thinks you pose to the right. community. Okay. So I go into this pre-sentence investigation and, and we go through everything. And, and this woman looks at me and she said, if I were you, by the time you hit sentencing, I would be clean and I would live in an Oxford house. I said, okay. So I did that. And I don't know why I knew about Oxford. You know, um, in my old job, I had taken people into Oxford houses, you know, I knew they existed, but for some reason it just clicked in that moment. Like that was my way out. And it was a way out that I didn't think anybody would argue with me on, you know, my friends that still wanted drugs or who, you know, all those people that I knew, 
if I don't go into this Oxford house, I'll go to prison. That's how I presented it. Yeah. And it worked kind of. Tell me, and, and for people that don't know, what is Oxford house? So Oxford house is a sober living house. Um, that's run completely by the people inside of it. Um, there's rules on a lot of things, but basically if you drink or use drugs, you are immediately kicked out. Um, everyone pays their equal portion. They call it EES. You're responsible for cleaning the house yourself. Like there's no authority figure that comes in and says, this is how you have to do it other than people just like you that have been elected into service positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a place for people to get their lives back. And Oxford house has a really high success rate. I think the, the last numbers I saw, if you stay in an Oxford house 18 mm-hmm. months, you have about an 80% chance of f- successful recovery. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Okay. And I have a, I have a little bit of knowledge of Oxford house cause I, for a news story, I decided to spend the weekend at one. And one of the things I found and I see what your experience was, but what really struck me is the, a couple of things. Um, the self governance component where mm-hmm. they have, you know, the council and everyone decides who's going to do what job and, um, and there's a conversation about it, but nobody is lording over anyone saying you have to, it's just a very, but it's a supportive environment. So if somebody doesn't do it, it's that conversation happens more in the spirit of, you know, support and helping someone understand why this is important. And the other thing, well, a couple of things, it, it sense of responsibility and ownership that you have this thing and you're letting other people down if you don't do it and you're letting yourself down if you don't do it. Right. Right. And the most impactful thing to me, uh, that I learned in my short, time in Oxford house was, uh, this sense of family. And a lot of these people didn't have prior to Oxford house, any sense of a support system. They didn't have any sense of family. And I felt like the Oxford house replicated or replaced what would have been family for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Did you get that experience too? Absolutely. I'm still best friends with two of the girls that were there when I was acting a fool. I didn't do well in Oxford at first. It took me a few times to figure it out. Um, one of my best friends performed my wedding a few months ago and I met him in Oxford. Um, it, it's absolutely a family. Yeah. And you guys continue that afterwards. It's Mm -hmm. you, when a lot, I know a number of you that have been in Oxford and got out and you're still doing things together. Now you're Mm -hmm. still active in this recovery community today. A lot of people that have graduated, so to speak from Oxford house, right? Right. So you had a little trouble at first with Oxford house and I, did did you get booted out? I never, I don't know how they didn't kick me out. Um, chapter thought they should have a few times. Um, I just didn't appreciate them telling me what I couldn't do, you know? And I didn't understand like, what do you mean? I can't go eat Chinese food with my alcoholic drug addicted boyfriend, you know, he didn't pull in the driveway. I didn't see the big deal of it. Um, I relapsed a couple times, moved out to my dad's again, because yeah. I always thought that was going to solve my problems. And he tried bless his heart. Um, but then I finally relapsed out of one of the houses and I finally got to treatment. Okay. I had to lie to him, but they, they agreed to let me in. 
So you got into residential treatment? Yes. Okay. Um, not in Hutchinson at the time because we didn't have it. No, I right. went to Winfield to okay. preferred family health. Okay. And how long were you there? Um, I was there for 54 days. Okay. I think they kicked me out, but not because I got high. But you you got out yes. and you come back to Hutch? Yes. Okay. Yes, I immediately, um, I was already planning my escape from their reintegration program. I didn't want to live in Winfield for the rest of my life. And I had interviewed at Tomahawk Oxford House over the phone as a way to convince my corrections officer to let me leave. And she said, no, give me a few more weeks or something. But they ended up kicking me out over something very small, very small. Um, And I just immediately went to Tomahawk because they have this two-week window that your interview is still good. So I just called them and said, I'm on my way. And they're like, what do you mean? So, well, I got kicked out of treatment. I'm on my way. So. And so they let, they let you in. Yeah. And that time were you successful? That was the time it finally worked. Okay. If I find, I had to do a couple more days in jail for getting kicked out of treatment, but, um, yeah, everything turned around right then. I felt welcome. I felt wanted like these were a lot of the same girls that had been like basically beating their head against a brick wall like all you have to do is just stay home you know um and they were finally just like okay here we go let's do this and then they started trusting me with with checkbooks you know the house checkbook i'm like do you know me like they're like yeah we do and this is what you do now so that was huge talk to me a little bit about that because how impactful is that to somebody who's you know, this, the kind of the takeaway I had from my experiences, you, you, some addicts look and they say, I've made a complete wreck of my whole life, mm-hmm. right? I've made all these mistakes. I've hurt all these people. I can't be trusted with any of these things. And you're giving me a checkbook right. for these other people. Yeah. Tell me what that, what that does to you. It, it might sound crazy, but it gives you a sense of, of identity back a little bit. You know, because when you're out there and you're selling drugs and you're doing drugs, um, you know that society as a whole would probably feel better off without you. You know what I mean? Nobody's counting on you to do anything. No one's expecting you to do any better. They honestly probably don't care if you live or die most of the time. You know, I've seen awful things written about addicts that have died, you know. Um, But then all of a sudden here are people that, you know, like. I know these people are just like me and I didn't even get along with all of them. Yeah. You know, one of them in particular, she's my best friend now, but we severely did not like each other, you know? And they were like, we trust you. Here's the checkbook and here's how you do it. And that probably starts to build, I mean, success begets success, right? So you do that and then you start to feel like, okay, maybe I can handle some of these other things in life. Right. Yeah. And they just put me in the car. Hey, do you want to go to this meeting and help this house? And I'd put, they'd always offer me a Pepsi. That's how they got me to go places. <laughs> and then <laughs> eventually it was, well, I think you should have this chapter position. I think you should be the president of the house. If you keep the Pepsi coming, I suppose, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> but it was enough to keep you wanting to do yeah. it. And you're building this kind of confidence. Right. right. The people tend to rise to their expect 
you know, to the expectations placed upon them or they fall to meet them. Yeah. And once I got treatment and I kind of got my head on straight just a little bit, I was able to realize that their expectations were for my own good. You know, they genuinely wanted me to do better and that allowed me to rise to meet them. And that gave you some perspective about why they didn't want you to go into eat Chinese right. food before, right? Yeah, they were so mad. Yeah. And it I, wasn't because they were being right. jerks or trying to control you. They, right. I found myself doing the same thing, you know? No, you can't do that. You know, it's crazy. That's funny. So you you get out of Oxford House. Uh, mm -hmm. When did you leave Oxford? Um, I moved out of Oxford in January of 2019. 2019 with my best friend. We got an apartment together. Okay. And, uh, and so you're on your own. Mm -hmm. You're, I, are you renting a house now? We were apartment? renting an apartment. Okay. Yeah. It was supposed to just be the two of us, but surprise, our kids showed up. Okay. Her oldest son ended up moving in with her. By that point, I had custody again of my youngest son. Okay. So our two bedroom apartment was immediately pretty full. So we found a three bedroom and lived there for a year. Okay. So at this point you're working, mm -hmm. you're taking care of your kids. Yep. Um, you're uh, living a totally different life. Yes. What were you doing for work at the time? Um, when I first got into Oxford, I worked at McDonald's okay. on 30th street. Um, and then my friends from Oxford gave my resume to the president of New Beginnings, and I ended up getting hired on there as an accounts manager. Okay. And I've been there for a little over two years now. Yeah, that's where you still work today, yep. right? And New Beginnings is uh, has, has been in town for a, a, a number of years, long time actually, yeah. um, that runs a, sh a homeless shelter mm -hmm. or a, a overnight shelter. Um transitional housing and has a lot of programming to help people transition mm -hmm. from homelessness into uh, home ownership eventually if, if that right. works for them right and so you do it you do an accounts management for that right mm -hmm. okay and uh and now you, you so you're doing that you've been doing that job for two years right right um how does how do you feel now working that job steady income stability helping other people looking back on the kind of arc of your, your life from that time when you were seven, 14 doing right. alcohol and painkillers for the first time all the way through that. What, what does that feel like now? Honestly, it doesn't even feel like the, I'm the same person. It feels like those were two separate people, um, which I know they weren't, you know, but it's hard sometimes for me to try to, to explain why I was doing the things that I was doing because they, they're starting to not make sense to even me now. Yeah. You know, I remember that's what I was thinking, but I also know that's not quite logical, you know, but that's the power of addiction is it takes away your ability to be logical and rational and to make informed decisions. Because your primary driver is something different than logic and the, the things that most people use to make decisions in life, right? Right. I mean, from a rational point of view, you know, a logical, even a survival perspective, you know, Maslow's first tier of needs is food, shelter, 
safety. Mm-hmm. And when you get as far down as I had gone, those were gone. I had none of that. And I wasn't actively seeking any of those things. I wasn't seeking food. I was sometimes I wasn't trying to find a place of my own. You know what I mean? I wasn't seeking any of that because that wasn't what was important at the time. I hadn't thought of this in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So I'm glad you brought this up. <laughs> but, but what I hear, what I hear there is that those basic food, shelter, security, those are replaced with addiction. In in, in that moment that, that your, those basic hierarchical needs are replaced by, I need this feeling. That's Mm -hmm. what provides me with the, that's what I'm using instead. Right. Okay. So thanks for explaining all. I just want to pause and say, (laughs) thanks for explaining that. I'm I'm asking you a lot of tough questions and you're you're doing great. So I really appreciate that. So not only are you working paying taxes, mm-hmm. spending money in our economy, doing all the things that we hope people do. Um, you're kind of involved in some other projects uh, to kind of advance uh, understanding of addiction and recovery and to, to help people. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing in that field now. Well, back in 2018, um, there was quite a few fatal overdoses that happened here in town. And I hadn't been in Oxford for very long, but I knew some of them, you know, and, um, while I was away at treatment, they organized a March, which is kind of where it started, at least in my recollection of it. Um, and they wanted to do something about it and it just progressed into what we now know as addicts against overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, it really kicked off um, probably beginning of 2020. Yeah. Um, cause we had a whole bunch more over fatal overdoses in town and these were our friends and these were, you know, good people. They weren't, they weren't what the movies show. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that danger lurking in a shadow somewhere that's going to rob your soul. You know, that they weren't that they were good, good people who loved their kids and, and were just struggling, you know? And nobody really seemed to do anything about it. Um, There was a lot of talk for a day or two, you know, like the police department said, we'll find them, you know, we'll stop the drugs. But they've been saying that for a hundred years, you know. So we decided that we were just going to hand out naloxone. And, And explain what that is and what it does. So naloxone is a medication that can reverse the effects of an opiate overdose. Um, It clears the opiates from the receptors in your brain. When you're overdosing, your brain forgets to tell your body to breathe. And that's how how you die. You you suffocate because you just forget to breathe, you know. So when you administer Narcan, it clears those receptors and you remember to breathe. So it's a really, it's a nervous system response that mm-hmm. I've never understood exactly what happens, but it's a nervous system response. Mm-hmm. It's over, maybe overstimulated or overwhelmed and you literally can't breathe. Right. You okay. just shut down. Um, and you guys have been not only like helping people understand the value of this uh, intervention, but you've been distributing Nar- Narcan mm-hmm. is the commercial name for it, right? Right. Um, 
you've been distributing that a lot of places. Every Saturday, mm-hmm. I think you guys are somewhere distributing yeah. this, right? We've kind of slowed down a little bit. There's a national shortage on naloxone, okay. but we've given out over probably 2,000 doses just in Reno County in like, what, six months maybe? And then we there was a lot, you know? Um, and we've fought a lot of public opinions about that. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. Yeah, not everybody was excited about it. Um, we were accused of causing the overdose spike. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Because apparently if people know that there's a possibility that they could be revived, that's going to make them want to do more just to see how far they can push it was, I think, how they explained it to me. Um, But there's no scientific evidence to back that up. Well, let's debunk a couple of these things. Okay. So explain to me why or why that's not true. Why, why providing medication like, uh, you know, to, to stop an overdose or reverse an overdose, um, why that's, why that's not true that that's, I've seen those comments before Mm -hmm. that it's going to, well, you're just encouraging people to use drugs and use more drugs because they know that you're going to be there to swoop in and keep them from dying. Why isn't that true? Well, because it doesn't always work. Yeah. It's, it's not a guarantee that you're going to be okay. You know, um, especially with people that are using alone. You know, you can't administer Narcan to yourself. Yeah. Um, there's not, the fentanyl is so powerful, you know, and there's no real way to gauge how strong, you know, the substance is. You know, I've seen or heard of people needing three or four doses to come out of it. And we only provide two at a time. Now, you mentioned fentanyl. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that I've heard about that, that one of the biggest issues with overdose right now is that there's drugs cut with fentanyl and people Mm -hmm. don't realize they're using fentanyl and it's highly powerful Mm -hmm. and that is causing a lot of overdose dose deaths. Right. Right. So it might not be in the situation you described that somebody's risk taking because they feel safe. It may be that they're taking a drug that has fentanyl in it that they don't know has fentanyl in it. I mean, the meth has fentanyl in it. Maybe not all of it, but some of it does. Um, the K2 has fentanyl in it. The cocaine has fentanyl in everything, at literally everything. I've heard of marijuana that had fentanyl in it, you know? Help me. Why is why does it have fentanyl in it? Can you help me understand that? I'm not 100% sure. I have my theories. I'd love to hear a theory. Okay. My theory is, is that fentanyl weighs more especially than like marijuana. Marijuana doesn't weigh a whole lot, right? Put a little bit of fentanyl in it, it weighs more. So you can make an ounce go further. That's my personal theory. I don't know anybody that sells fentanyl. I don't know why they're actually doing it, but that's what I think. It's a way to make them more money. Okay. So if you cut the drug with fentanyl, then it weighs more and you can um, thin it out. Basically right. Charge more and it overall. still produces a high over back in the day when they were using baby powder, you know, baby powder doesn't get you high, but fentanyl does. And it's very, very addictive, you know? So then let's say somebody gets a bag of methamphetamines and they like the way it feels. They don't know it has fentanyl in it, but they like the way it feels. So they come back and they're like, I want more of that. Yeah. 
you know? So now they've got their hooks in you two different ways. Another myth that I want to debunk on this is that who's paying for all this Narcan? So Addicts Against Overdose, um, we pay for our Narcan, at least the shipping of it. A lot of it has been donated um, from, I don't even honestly couldn't tell you for sure where they get it. But, it's, but but there are national groups that yes. work on this and yes. they they do their they raise funds yes. they purchase narcan they find groups like you that are working on the local level and send that narcan to you right and we generally pay for the shipping the point i want to make sure that everyone gets is this is not your taxpayer dollars no. are not being used to purchase narcan no. uh, you guys have done fundraisers yeah. Right. To raise money to purchase Narcan. Yeah, we've done a few. We sell T-shirts. Um, we do. Sometimes people just give us money and that's cool. We had to go fund me to get our 501c3 status and that's still pending. The IRS is slow. Yeah. But you guys finished the paperwork on yeah. it and that'll allow you to take uh, tax deductible contributions mm -hmm. and and grow that organization and, and you hope to do that statewide and, right yeah so once the 501c3 comes in our name will be the kansas recovery network it's the first harm reduction coalition in the state of kansas um addicts against overdose will continue as our naloxone distribution program and our our hope is that we can take and set up what we do in wichita and McPherson and Salina and Hayes and El Dorado. Like we keep getting messages and calls from all these people. Like we need your help. You know, we just don't have the funds or the resources to do it. But once that comes through, we would be able to get grants and do the tax deductible donations. And it kind of makes us the real deal that some of those national organizations would be willing to to help us and it wouldn't be so many small donations i think that's really exciting and Thank to you. think that it started here and to yeah. think that it started by people who a decade ago were on the other end of this equation oh yeah right we're all felons we're all in recovery we have everywhere from six months to four years you know there are people that we have help us at the distribution that have weeks of recovery you know we don't discriminate but it helps to know that you're helping yeah it, it provides some a sense of something bigger than yourself this is a right. central component of recovery right right you do things beyond yourself and believe in something right. bigger but something crazy about harm reduction okay and what we're doing definitely counts as harm reduction is people who receive harm reduction services are five times more likely to find their own way into treatment Say that again for me. People who receive harm reduction services are five times more likely to find their own way into treatment. So one of my questions was going to be, why do we want, why do we care about harm reduction? Mm -hmm. You talked about some of the negative comments that have been out there and I've seen them too. Uh, some of them are kind of along the lines of let them die. Yeah. So I, I made a post once about teenagers that were, that were dying from taking one pill. Right. And one of the comments literally said, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. That's about kids. Aside from just being cruel, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the comments and of course on social media, things can be very, very cruel and thoughtless. But why do we want harm reduction? And you said it, you kind of pre-answered my, <laughs> before I even asked the question, I made the statement in Topeka last year that people can't find recovery if they're not alive. Exactly. I think I'm familiar enough with your work and, and what uh, you all have done. The idea is that if we keep people alive, they, they can recover. And if they recover, they end up in a place where you're at. Exactly. And they're doing exactly the things that we want thriving. Mm-hmm. We want people thriving in our community. Yeah. Well, give me some other examples of harm reduction. We talked about Narcan, but what are some other mm-hmm. things that, that are considered harm reduction that maybe we haven't talked about much or we haven't seen much of in a place like Kansas? So another form of harm reduction that's very popular everywhere but here are syringe exchange programs. What is the what is that and what is the, the belief behind that? So the belief behind it is... Um, there's multiple beliefs, but first to stop the spread of bloodborne illnesses like HIV and hepatitis C, um, to give them clean supplies. Okay. We can't stop you from using drugs, but hopefully we can help you not catch one of these diseases, right? But it also keeps syringes from being found in playgrounds and parks because they have a safe place that they can bring them back to. Mm-hmm. Um, most of these services offer in-house hepatitis testing, in-house HIV testing, um, free of charge. There's generally a case manager type person there. And um, they just ask, you know, what, how are you doing? What are your goals? You know, do you want to cut back? And and you let the, the person decide what they want to do. You know, maybe Sally Joe doesn't want to stop doing drugs, but she wants to stop injecting drugs. Okay. You know, that's a positive step forward. She's not ready to quit altogether, but how do you do that? You know, or something like that. So it's kind of helping people and giving them resources to move mm-hmm. to maybe a better place with the hope that eventually, and, and if they're going to do drugs, do them in a safer way. Right. Right. In a way that doesn't add to the public health complexities. Right. That deal with. And, and it's not only to keep the people using drugs safe, it's to keep the community they use in safe. Well, we probably should make a point that somebody that gets hepatitis C through intravenous drug use at some point probably or possibly ends up working in a place that handles a non-drug user's food. Absolutely. Right? I mean, that's the, that's the connecting point about yep. why people who don't drug, use drugs and might not ever use drugs might want to care about an issue like this, mm-hmm. right? Other harm reduction methods that, that are out there that, that you think are important to, to mention? Um, I think that destigmatizing drug use is vitally important. Um, they're people. I don't, it doesn't matter what you think of their addiction. They're someone's daughter. They're someone's dad. You know, they're, they're people. And a lot of people fail to realize that. I think they don't see the humanity. They refuse to see the humanity, I think, because they couldn't have the opinions that they have if they recognize them as a person. Yeah. Do you find, it seems to me that I've found that um, people can have that kind of attitude until that 
hits their family right. or it hits very close to home. And right. then, and then people who might've felt differently before find themselves facing a situation with a family member that they never thought they'd, they'd have to face. Right. And that becomes very real at that point. Right. But what's crazy is that addiction is so prevalent. 99% of the population knows someone who, you know, and some people take that experience with them as I tried to help my daughter and she robbed me blind and lost her kids and now I'm raising them. And, you know, they take that and it, and it hardens them, you know, because because they weren't able to help, you know, or the person wasn't willing to accept the help, you know, but the people you love the most are the ones that are the least effective to help you. Yeah. You need somebody away from that, right? Yes. Yeah. So this kind of leads me to one of the questions I, and probably the last question I'll, I'll okay. ask because I warned you that I talked too much and it turns out that I did. Um, what do you wish people understood about addiction and addicts that they might not understand? Um, they want to do better. Even if it doesn't seem like they do, they're not having fun. Like that's not what they want to do for the rest of their life. I don't remember anyone that I ever met that was just like, yeah, you know, everybody hated it. But when you're so isolated from society and from family and you're so discriminated against, you know, um, with housing, if you have drug convictions, it's hard to get housing. It's, you know, you don't have any sense of connection and the opposite of addiction is connection. Thank you for coming on today. You're Thank welcome. you for talking so frankly with me about this and for uh, spending so much time with me today. Absolutely. This weekend is Halloween weekend, and as such, there are loads and loads and loads of Halloween activities for families and children across town. I'm not going to get into all the details on all of them. I would encourage you, however, to go to visithutch.com. They have a pretty comprehensive list of all the events that are going on. A couple that caught my attention, you know, one of the more popular events in the recent years has been the Boo at the Zoo, and that's happening on Saturday, as is the Little Train of Horrors, which you can ride the train around the zoo, and that is always a big hit with kids. Uh, the Cosmosphere is doing a special showing of the Adams Family movie, and I know that's a popular Halloween movie, but there are also loads of trunk or treats around town, and those will be happening on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I know the kids can really load up on the candy and, uh, and, and usually make a pretty good haul if they, if they make the rounds on those. But like I said, I'm uh, not going to get into all the details on that because there's almost too much to cover. But I hope that everyone has a happy and safe Halloween. And if you want to find out more about where you can take your kids on Halloween or on Friday or Saturday or Sunday, go to visithutch.com. I'd like to thank a few of the people who have helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigett put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. 
That podcast in Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast in Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyinhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyinhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. A Salt City Sound production.